So at this point, we went back to do the vertical thing. The problem then was it had taken, it was enough time that other storage technologies had caught up. So now we weren't that differentiated. And so, yeah, you, you could do everything, but you, there wasn't enough. The crown jewels had lost their luster. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To reduce risk in your life, go to myworstinvestmentever.com today and take the risk reduction assessment I've created from the lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey, are you ready to join the mission? I am ready to join the mission. I am signed up. <laughs> All right. Well, let's have some fun. I want to introduce you to the audience. Jeffrey Moore is an author, speaker, and advisor who splits his consulting time between startup companies in the Wildcat Venture Partners portfolio and established high-tech enterprises. Moore's life work has focused on the market dynamics surrounding disruptive innovations. His first book, Crossing the Chasm, which I might note to you all, has a 4.6 score out of five with more than a thousand ratings, which I consider to be very impressive, focuses on the challenges that startup companies face transitioning from early adopting to mainstream customers. Jeffrey, if you could take a minute and tell us a bit about the value that you bring to this world. Well, I mean, other than the fact that I'm a grandfather of two really cool grandchildren, which is number one. No, my, my whole career in business has focused on this dynamics of technology adoption life cycle, the dynamics of technology adoption. And so I've helped to create frameworks which help management teams and investors understand the risks and reduce the risks. And in particular, this Crossing the Chasm book was about the risks that happen in a venture investment after you've had success with the product, but you have not yet established market presence. So you have customers, you have products, but you don't have a going concern. And, and it turns out that the, the challenge you're facing at that time is these first customers you had, we call them early adopters, they're willing to buy pretty much on the kind of their own judgment. They don't ask for a lot of references. They don't ask for a lot of proof points they kind of believe what you believe and they're kind of going to lean in with you. So you have this early success and you think, well, now's the time to pile on all the resources. The chasm is the mainstream market customers, a very different animal. They do need to see references. They do need to see a, a proof of concept. And so you have to completely reframe your market development strategy and your product roadmap to make this transition, which we called crossing the chasm. And that turned out to be, you required a framework to say, why am I doing this? And what do I have to do? And that's kind of what my work has been about. And why were you particularly suited to see this challenge? Maybe I, I guess like I'm thinking about the lean startup and all that we've learned in the startup space of kind of focusing on that initial product, the MVP, minimum viable product, and developing that customer base and really building that relationship. How is it that you saw what was it like, I don't know, in your own background or your own life that you first saw, wait a minute, that's a different stage. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it turned out, so I was started off, by the way, in a different career. I was an English professor. I moved out to California to be with, our family wanted to move back to California. There were no jobs in academia. I joined a software company. I spent 10 years in various roles at software companies, mostly in sales and marketing. And then I joined a marketing consultancy called Regis McKenna, which at the time was the premier marketing consulting for high tech in the 80s. And so what that let me do, and, and, and they specialized in disruptive innovation, people bringing all this new technology. They were behind Apple and Intel and Tandem and all these companies of the 80s. And, and as I was there, and they had the technology adoption lifecycle model already in view, but I kept on saying, well, wait a minute, we have all these great launches, and then what happens to these companies? They're, they're, they kind of go off the radar. What's going on? And so I think because I was new and because you know I, I kind of have that kind of mind which sort of says, well... I need to understand what's going on here. Uh, I thought, well, there's a, there's a problem here, and so that, and because I would, every every major high tech company in that five years that I worked there came through at one point or another. I got to see a lot of companies kind of in a condensed space. So I think that's what gave me the opportunity. You know, as opposed if you're in a, if you're a professor at Harvard or Stanford, you can do research projects, but you just don't get the same intimacy as when clients come to a consulting firm saying, "We need some help." Yeah, and if you're a Harvard professor, it may be the, only the guys that are really big that come to you and the, the people that are just getting ready to try to figure out how they got across that chasm, you know, may not come. You don't, yeah, you don't get to see them. I mean, my favorite Harvard professor was Clay Christensen, and he and I worked in kind of the same field, and he had his, his view of it, too, and which was, you know, I think a good counterweight to mine. I, I would encourage your readers to read The Innovator's Dilemma as well as The Crossing the Chasm. So just out of a purely selfish perspective, you know, I totally relate to this because I, I've been an, an innovator as an analyst. I was developing my own frameworks. You use that word. I developed a world-class benchmarking scorecard that I use. I developed something I call FVMR investing, where I look at fundamentals, valuation, momentum, and risk. And these are frameworks that I personally used. And then I developed a financial model that I've developed over the years, and it provides a framework. All these things I developed to solve kind of problems in my own life. And I thought, well, why don't I take these to the market? Yeah. And who, who bought them? My friends. Yeah. And, and it, in some ways, it's a curse of initial success because, you know, they're like, hey, yeah, this is great. I'll work with that. Yeah, yeah, that may not be worked out or, you know, but overall, it was an appearance of success. But then I realized there's a whole nother, there's a huge chasm, as we call it now. I, was, originally, <laughs> yeah. I called it a wall. But yeah. what? And I, I know that there's other people listening that are in my situation where they've developed something to solve probably a personal problem or issue. They're selling it out to a small number of people and they do want to go big like I want to go. What would be like the one or two pieces of advice for people like myself? Yeah, now, this is key. So in this model, there's actually four stages. So the first stage is the one you described. That's the one where you build an initial market success with a cohort of like-minded people. We say these are people who believe what we believe, right? The next group, nobody else believes what you believe. So it's like, well, this is the wall or the chasm or whatever it is. So who in the world will listen to us next? Well, it turns out people on the other side of the chasm, they're very pragmatic. And you're looking for what we call pragmatists in pain. So pragmatists in pain has a problem that they cannot solve with conventional means. They're under increasing pressure to solve it. And they're looking around kind of almost to anywhere who would help. And so these people don't believe what you believe, but they need what you have. And so it, and it turns out you want to go after a very narrowly defined niche market that has intense 
urgent problems that are a really good fit with your framework or your crown jewels or whatever it is. And even though this is a tiny market and you were going to be global dominant, right? You, we're going to dominate the entire universe. But at this moment of transition, you want to have something that's big enough to matter, but small enough to lead. And you're not very big right now. So you have to think about that. I mean, this market's got to be big enough to matter. In other words, you've got to be able to grow 10x inside the market. So if you're a $10 million company, you've got to be able to get to $100 million. But it can't be a billion-dollar market because you'll just be a minnow in the ocean. So finding that market and then the, the use case, which we use a lot in the computer industry, this phrase use case, has got to be really urgent. And you just have to nail it. You can't like be pretty good at it. You have to bring together whatever partners and allies you need. You have to just nail it. Because once you nail it, now all of a sudden that community, which does reference each other, starts saying to each other, hey, you know, this problem we've been having, there's a fix for it. It's, you know, it's, you got to talk to Andrew. You got to talk to Jeffrey. There's, there's a fix for it. And, and then, then you can come. And once you get it started one place, now you've got the beginning, it's what we call it like starting the bonfire. Now you can maybe go from one adjacent segment to another adjacent segment. And we, we, you build out in that second phase, you, you're building out around very specific use cases just to complete it and to get back to minimum viable product and, you know, and all the rich people, you know, Mark Andreessen and crew. The next thing, what happens after you have X number of use cases, and this is particularly in a business to business market, somebody goes, well, wait a minute. This is a more this is a more broadly you know there's lots of use cases for this and then all of a sudden people say you know we got to get we have to go to cloud computing we, we have to get mobile devices we have to get cybersecurity and all of a sudden now for the first time there's a the customers that you're going after have budget for you and not for you personally but for your category but in the first two stages they didn't in the first stage, they never heard of your category, and they just gave you some money because you were you know, they were like-minded. In the second stage, they hadn't heard of your category, but they had money for the problem. So if you could redirect the money, you could do that. But in the third stage, they want to buy a, they want to buy cloud computing. I want to buy Wi-Fi. I want to buy whatever. And then the fourth and final stage is when the market settles down into a longer, more mature, cyclical, you know, the kind of market that there's a Dow Jones market as opposed to a NASDAQ market. That kind of stuff. Got it. So I guess okay. when you're talking about that point of crossing the, the chasm, it's the idea that maybe you have to shift from, you know, personal relationships and all that to, okay, we really need to market this product. We got to have some sort of channel to find the urgency out there. So number one, we've got to somehow find that urgency. And number two, we've got to do a better way. We can't just say, hey, I'm Andrew Stotts. Yeah. I'm here to solve it. Well, that yeah, yeah, my yeah. friends. Yeah, I'm yeah. Not no. going to work with these guys. Exactly. They don't, the one thing you can absolutely count on is they don't care about you. Yeah. And they don't care about your offer. And frankly, they don't even want to hear about your offer because they're in pain. So the entire marketing program in that second stage is about focus on their pain and focus on relieving their pain and forget about everything else. And, and by the way, you'll market yourself as a solution for their pain. And it's 80% it's of your marketing communications is about their pain. And then the 20% is, by the way, we have this thing called you know, morphine or whatever. It is. You know, we can fix it going forward. But that's a little bit unnatural because in the first stage, it was all about you. It was all about how brilliant you were and how brilliant the technology is and how exciting the whole thing is. So you can imagine entrepreneurs, this is not an easy transition for them to go through. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's a great description. And for the <laughs> listeners out there, go and get the book and go through the steps because this, you know, Jeffrey's really laid it out. And I know that, you know, it resonates with me. And I see 
there's a huge challenge, particularly as an analyst. My job has been to kind of try to solve those problems, but not market them, not go out and find those people in pain. And, you know, that's a whole nother, you know, angle. So that's a fantastic description of the value that you bring out there. And I personally appreciate it. I've already filled up a, a page of notes from all the stuff that you've said, and I look forward to hearing more. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, take a minute oh. and tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and tell us. This is great. So, so when I, after I wrote Crossing the Chasm, and I, was, I did it as a consultant, I was not an investor. But in 1998, an investment firm called Moore David House said, well, listen, why don't you come and be a venture partner? We have general partners. And what we want you to do is to teach crossing the chasm ideas to our portfolio and help them you know, be successful and, and, and advise them. And so I thought, well, that, that's, that's great. So, and, and of course, you, boy, in the end of the 90s, I mean, we call this, in retrospect, we kind of call it the time of the great happiness, because it's like everything was like, just seemed like everything was succeeding, was all going up. But in fact, there was a lot of smoking craters. And particularly once we transitioned into the year 2000, we had the tech downturn. It was it was difficult. So this is a story about a wonderful professor that comes from uh, I won't I won't make this too traceable, but comes from a, from a very prestigious technical university, and he has an idea about storage, about computer storage, and basically his idea is there's a bottleneck in the system called a file server, and you the problem is you got to run everything through the file server to get to the storage, and you run back to the file server, get back to the applications. What if you could do it all in parallel? And they had this really kind of brilliant architecture. And I thought, wow, this is like, whoa, this is the best ever. And it just seemed like, it seemed like anti-gravity machine. I mean, it, it was like, okay, this is a real technological breakthrough. And that, by the way, is the first risk you, so the first risk you look at in, in venture is technology risk. Can you turn it into a product? Well, it turned out that was a lot harder than anybody thought. And part of the challenge is, you know, hardware products, are very dependent on the underlying semiconductor technologies and the networking technologies and the buses and the everything going on. And there were enough variables going on that just turning that vision, even though the architecture was brilliant, turning that into actual realizable product was very difficult. And it turned out that the product was very expensive. But again, were there like-minded people who believed what we believed? There sure were. And so we, we had the early market success and we were a darling in the technology write-ups going forward. Then, and I, you know, this is, you know, as an advisor, you have only so much influence. <laughs> Let's just be clear. And there's other investors besides your firm, which also has a big impact. So what all the other investors said is, great, now time to go big. And I'm going, Time out, time out, time out. No, no, no. And they actually changed management and they brought in a guy from a leading personal computer firm, which had a significant storage business, because that person knew how to go big. And he was a channel person. Well, this was an incredibly complex product. It was not suitable for a channel. It needed very rifle shot direct development and it needed vertical market solutions, you know, pragmatists and pain. No, 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 it doesn't. No, 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 no. We're going big. We're going to. So they blasted this thing out and they had to, had huge, huge, basically market risk. I mean, they and basically, you know, the market and they spent a lot of money on marketing and a lot of money on sales forces. And these sales cycles would take forever because you had not built a coalition of pragmatic people saying this is good for something. So that burned through a considerable, by the way, a hardware company burns through a lot more capital than a software company. So this is like, we're now feeling like, 
I'm feeling maybe I am in one of these cities in the Ukraine right now. I mean, I'm seeing smoking buildings around me. So then at some point you say, okay, so that basically you have to recap the company. And the company basically ran out of fuel. So we recapped the company, and I'm not, I say we, the, the, the consortium of people. And then they said, you know what? Crossing the chasm. Jeff, get back in here. We're going to do crossing the chasm. So at this point, we went back to do the vertical thing. The problem then was it had taken, it was enough time that other storage technologies had caught up. So now we weren't that differentiated. And so, yeah, you we could do everything, but you, there wasn't enough. The crown jewels had lost their luster, Okay. And these people are trying, and we're, we keep on funding them because the, the, the management team at this point is just heroic. Mm. But it just there just wasn't enough differentiation to get it to the finish line. And so when you look at the, so you look at the, these, the classic four risks you look at at venture are technology risk or product risk, you know, financing risk, team risk, and market risk. And if you looked at it in, in, in retrospect, you'd say we kind of flunked all four. <laughs> I mean, by the time we got the team right, it was too late. And so, you know, and it wasn't like people were trying to lose money. We were trying to do it right. It just didn't happen. And can you remember a day or a particular time where it was, you know, like, okay, this is over? Well, the problem with these things, and this is really, this is another, uh, nobody wants it to be completely over. So they would do like the Series G cram down, recap for it. And so, you know, all the common stock has been diluted out of existence long ago. There's preferred stock that you learn about things called liquidation preferences, which is sort of a little bit like mortuary work. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, how, how do undertakers, you know, get their cut of something. So it, it's not, it's not pretty. And eventually, yeah, eventually they did. I mean, you, you end up either selling it for scrap or you, you effectively shutting it down. And the, the sad thing is the people that get shut down at the end, are some of the people you wanted to succeed more than because they were the ones who, who took responsibility for the for the smoking crater that the other guys who were so smart created, and then of course immediately left town as soon as they you know it didn't work. So it was it was it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, there was a lot of lessons for me in that one. So let's review that. How would you summarize the main lessons that you learned from that? Okay, so the first one I think is. Now, particularly, think about a venture portfolio as a ten, basically an exercise in 10-year liquidity. Okay, now you can extend it, but but that's usually so. The first problem with this thing was the technology was was not a 10-year. It was not going to get there in 10 years. It was we we just vastly underestimated the technology barriers to getting there. So that was number one. Number two, and I think the really the most significant risk was people think that you can transition from a complex systems business model to a volume operations business model in either direction. And it absolutely is untrue. Those two models are radically different and you must never ever try to combine them. I'll give you some examples. So Hewlett Packard had to split up because it had, you know, a PC and, and a printer business at the low end, but it had, you know, computer and storage at the high end, complex systems at the high end, direct sales force, corporate marketing, PCs and printers at the low end, consumer marketing want to be in the channel. And they were trying to run their complex products through the channels. Like, no, it was, it, it was a mess. Nokia with their servers, their networking equipment, but also with their hand, you know, the handheld devices. 
IBM got out of all of its volume operations. Like Cisco, you know, great routers and switches, but not so good with flip phones and home and home routers. Mm-hmm. So that was an important lesson. Okay, that was that was a lesson. And then I think the final lesson was around team risk. So just and it, it's related to the volume ops complex systems things, but it's really important that you get a team that that is fit for the time in the transition. So they had a they had a great early market team. They did not have a crossing the chasm team. They went straight to what we call the tornado, which is that third phase. They had brought in tornado management, who had been incredibly successful in markets where there was already budget, but there was not yet budget for this category. So they didn't know how to create budget. They only knew how to consume budget. So they were they were a complete disaster. Then we went back to the okay, we can create or re, or shift budget in this you know crossing the chasm, but it was too late. It was too late. Wow. There's so many lessons. Maybe I'll summarize a few takeaways. Okay, please. The, the first thing I was thinking about when you were telling the initial part of the story, I was thinking about the idea that there's just some things that are suited to incremental change. It's harder with some kind of like amazing new technology. If it can exist on its own away from the current system, you know, but if it has to be fit into the current system, there's something to be said for, and, and, you know, we hate the fact that Microsoft Office is so, you know, or Microsoft, let's say Windows is so damn, you know, they could do so much better and all that. Yeah, they know what they're doing in the sense that they're, they're bringing an incremental change. So yes, right. that, that made me think about that. The other thing I thought about is, you know, when people talk about runway and you talked about 10-year liquidity, when people talk about runway in the startup space, you know, normally what we talk about is money. You know, we're going to run out of money before we hit liftoff. I always talk about a second thing, which I, are we going to run out of confidence? Are the people working for us going to start to think, oh, shit, this isn't going to work? And then now you've kind of brought in a third element, which is can we get there before – do we have enough runway and enough resources to get there before the competitors do or before a solution comes out? And I think that's the that's the third element that I never really thought about that you've brought to this. Well, you're just making me think of something really, really important in that model, which is if you're going to be disruptive, you're starting a clock. Because what you're saying is I'm going to leap to the future and I can establish my business before the present catches up to me. And so the more you know, that's that's the bet. And if and if you don't get if you don't get that, if there's a time limit associated with that bet. And I think I, I, I really, I think I was very naive in the situation about the time limit. It's almost like, I mean, I love, I read a lot of books about the U.S. Civil War, but also have studied a lot on strategy. And I just, you know, what it sounds like in that case is like, you know, you're putting men behind enemy lines thinking we're going to sneak up on the back of them. But, you know, that is a very risky maneuver. So, you know, you're trying to go. Yeah. And then the, yeah. the, the last thing, you know, you talked about the, the complex versus simple. And I think it was a great illustration of kind of, you know, a mass market product that doesn't take a lot of work compared to something that needs a direct sales force and all of that. And I I think about an example in my own life. A friend of mine called me and asked me if I could help them sell their software that they wrote to Microsoft. And they wrote it in Thailand and they had been operating a hospital, and it was the only hospital in the world that was run on one piece of software. The guy that did it was a genius. And he basically bought the whole hospital into one software. So any new x-ray equipment that came in, he was like, stop. You have to integrate into this central 
operating system for the hospital. And his vision was that this could be hospitals around the world, particularly in the developing markets where there are new hospitals and they don't know how to set it up. Not particularly strong in the U.S. because it's kind of best of breed and, you know, fancy doctors get to say, I want this. I don't care that it works or not with other systems. But in Asia, this was going to be a boom for the hospital business to really save lives. Well, we went to Microsoft and sure enough, we sold it to them. And within three years, they crashed it into the ground and sold it to another, you know. And I, I remember reading a Bill and Melinda Gates letter about how how critical it was for the health industry and all that. And I was thinking, this is fascinating. And what it was, in my opinion, was just that this was a, this was a complex sale. It's a sales cycle of maybe one to three years working with the hospital as it's in early stage, you know. And then also it's a lot of implementation work. So it's a much more complex sale. And Microsoft is just used to, here, here's your window. It's a volume ops. It's a volume ops game, right? Right. I mean, how many... 10 billion copies of Windows or whatever the heck it is. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, both are necessary. It's not like one is better than the other. Because a lot of times you think, well, volume ops, I mean, isn't that the best? Not, not necessarily. No. I mean, no. I mean, if you have if you have really complex problems, you, you want a complex business. Accenture's got a good business model. Salesforce.com's doing just fine. Thank you very much. You know, I mean, so either one can work. But I think the mistake people make is, Oh, you're in the storage business or you're in any business, energy business, you're in the computing business. Oh, that means you could do either one. And the answer is not a chance in the world. (laughs) You know, it's a great example of that that I always think of. Even Michael Jordan, the best basketball player of all times, an amazing competitor, couldn't really build a career as a baseball Baseball player. (laughs) Exactly. It's a different sport. It's a different sport. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot, a lot, I think, for the audience to take away from that. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering that same fate? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I mean, as a financial analyst, diversification, you don't have to put all your assets in venture. Let's just be clear about that. But to the degree that you were going into a venture, I think the one thing I would take away is I would think realistically about time to liquidity rather than think about just like dominating the universe, which of course is always that, that hope. I think the, in other words, I would try to control the downside risk, not just the upside gain. And crossing the chasm, by the way, one of the things about that is if you establish a beachhead market in the mainstream with pragmatists and pain, you've become a going concern. Those customers will not let you go out of existence. And not only that, a ecosystem of partners will begin to form around those customers and your product because they can make a living solving this problem for more people in that that domain. It doesn't create incredible returns, but it puts a floor under, under the value of the company. And now you can raise money on your own terms and on your own timeline because you're no longer cash flow negative. You're, you're now cash flow positive, and you have a, a marketplace that is supporting you and pulling you in. So I think looking at that phase of the evolution of a disruptive innovation is really important. I would encourage your, your listeners to do that. Uh, such uh, great advice. Well, let me ask you, what is a resource that you'd recommend to the, to the audience, to the listeners, that something of yourself or, or your own or something else that's inspired you? Well, so first of all, I, I think there's two sets of resources, one around what I would call B2B complex systems and one around B2C volume operations. 
the B2C volume operations, it is the people like, you know, Eric Reese and Lean Startup and Steve Blank. And, and those guys really have, have laid out a really, a really good, good roadmap. I think for B2B stuff, I think Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado, which was the book that came right after it. Those, and then actually there's a book called The Gorilla Game, which is how to invest in those companies in the public market. So that might be fun for them as well. Those are the first three books that came out. And they all came out during the 90s. So it's a little bit, you know, a little bit, but it's not so dated that you'd say it doesn't apply anymore, I don't think. Yeah. Well, I'll have links to that in the show notes. So I think that's a great, great homework for all of us. <laughs> okay. Well, I, think, I, think, I think you, by the way, will enjoy the Gorilla Game because as a financial analyst, I wrote it with two other people, one of whom was a financial analyst at Credit Suisse. Yep. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll probably enjoy a bunch of them. I'm looking forward to it. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, it's interesting. Now we're getting into it. So I am at a point in my career where I wrote my first non-business book since my dissertation 45 years ago. <laughs> and basically, it's a, it's a philosophy book. It's called The Infinite Staircase. And what it's about is if you take traditional ethics and you also take this scientific story of, you know, Big Bang evolution, how we got here, how do you put the two together? And so the first two thirds of the book it sort of tells the story of how do you get from 13.8 billion years ago in a big bang to Andrew and Jeffrey talking over Zoom, you know, in the middle of March. And it's like with that, with no with no miracle interventions. Right. So that and it turns out you can piece together the story, but it's hard because these specialized disciplines. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff you have to pull together. But I'm a kind of a geek that way. And so I like doing it. And it's a framework. Remember, I'm a framework guy. So that was the framework. And then the last third was, okay, well, then how do we act in, in that world? You know, how do you authorize ethics? What, what is, how do you understand goodness? What, what do you do? And of course, I'm, you know, I'm 75 years old right now. I'm, I'm in the fourth quarter. You know, we're playing a football game. It's not going to be a fifth quarter. So I'm in the fourth quarter. So like, what do you want to do? And I'm still a pretty good athlete. So I feel like Tom Brady a little bit like, hey, I can play this sport, even if I'm over age for it. So I'm kind of excited about doing that. Anyway, this book was my attempt to sort of say, okay, here's a way of looking at that situation. And I hope it will be value to people, other people. So mm, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating topic, too, because one of the things, I mean, here I am in little old Thailand. I mean, for the first year of the whole COVID thing, we didn't even have a vaccine or anything, right? So right, people, right. people had, had to look for alternatives and all of that stuff. But what was interesting to, to observe, just kind of, you know, I'm an, I'm an observer of the U.S. now after having not lived there for 30 years, is, is how, how strongly they got behind one solution, which in this case was vaccine, fine. Yeah. Yep. Then, then the effort that was put in to sidelining every other solution, yep. you know, now there's good research on vitamin D as an example. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And, and there was things that people knew, but they sidelined a lot of what would be considered basic principles, even the idea of triage and saying, okay, older people are more at risk or yeah, yeah. morbidities. We've seen that in Italy already when it's- yeah, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then, then you see this kind of movement where you start to wonder, now the doctor-patient relationship has been put to the test. Yes. Could a doctor go off label and prescribe something? And, well, in the past, the doctor could do that. That was part of medical ethics, that yeah. it was yeah. a one-to-one, -one. but now- it seems like there's kind of this shift, like maybe you can't do that anymore. You've got to stay on label. 
And then if you stay on label, what's the purpose of the doctor? Right. Well, maybe right. we move to Good. medicine through algorithms. And then just think about the ethics of that potential development right. is fascinating. It is fascinating. I, I think part of what made it complicated for someone who's living in the middle of the, the, the United States right now is some. So in the last 10 years, the political rhetoric around everything has become so divisive and so corrupt that that all institutions are become questioned completely. And so as a result, I think part of the reason people focused so much on just trying to eliminate other alternatives was not that there weren't good alternatives at the margin, but there were horrible alternatives that were being promulgated for other reasons. And the reasons were very destructive. The United States is in a tough spot right now. I mean, our culture is at risk. And part of the reason I wanted to write the book also was to say, okay, well, what do you do about that? I mean, how, how do you how do you function in that, in that world? So anyway, well, I mean, I it's, it's, it's a high class problem to have. But, yes. But, okay. Yes, it's, uh, you've taken on an interesting subject. And, uh, Thank you. For, yeah, for the rest of the world, probably we're just trying to figure out how to feed ourselves and all that. You know, but, you know and that's part of, but believe me, that's part of that first story about how do we get from, from the Big Bang to us? Because you have to figure out, well, first of all, there's a period where there's just Earth, by the way, for two billion years has bacteria and nothing else. And then, and somehow we got from bacteria to you and me. I mean, you know, I don't know how we. Did. So anyway, I was trying. It, it's fun, but feeding yourself is a is a key component to getting there for sure. I remember my father used to always say, "If my grandfather could see what we're doing now in the '80s, you know." <laughs> and now yes. Of that now, it's amazing. <laughs> it's Fantastic. Great. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't taken. The risk reduction assessment. I challenge you to go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and start building wealth the easy way by reducing risk. As we conclude, Jeffrey, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, no, it's great. I think risk-adjusted returns is the key idea, not just returns. <laughs> okay. Take care, Andrew. Thank you very much. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk-takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying thanks for joining the mission, and I'll see you on the upside.